Jane is an all-in-one practice management software that can help you manage your practice with a suite of features that make it easy to meet with individuals, couples, families, and more. Here on Am I a Bad Therapist, we know that two of the most important things to us as therapists are confidentiality and our time. Thankfully, Jane understands that reliability and security are very important parts of running a private practice. Jane's cloud-based software is accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi, and their team is always ready to lend a helping hand. Jane is HIPAA and PEPITA compliant, and your data is stored safely in the country you practice in. So no matter where or how you practice, Jane's always with you in the most secure and helpful way possible. Not only does Jane help us protect our clients, but they help us protect our time too with features like calendar syncing, note templates, online booking, and they have automated reminders and workflows. Which you know we love on Am I a Bad Therapist? And you can learn more at jane.app slash mental health. You can also mention the code bad therapist for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. While we're certainly not promoting actual bad therapy, we are here to shine a light on the messy situations that therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Allie, we have been waiting for this episode. I know. I don't even we don't, I don't even think we need to do a whole intro today, Catherine, for our mm-hmm. listeners because we just mm-hmm. need to dive into this incredible topic. We're going to hear from Silvana about so many amazing topics. I just feel like we need to dive into it. Absolutely. And so stay tuned because we're going to learn all about decolonizing your practice and why working harder is not necessarily better in your private practice. And just a reminder that this is not a substitute for a clinical consultation, ethical guidance, or therapy itself, because we don't do bad therapy here. That we don't. Okay. Well, this is episode number 65 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Silvana, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into your story today, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. Um, I am a, a marriage and family therapist in the state of Oregon, uh, in Kalapuya territory. Uh, I am also supervisor here uh, in the state of Oregon, and I also uh, am a consultant, so I have a program where I uh, help clinicians uh, have very inclusive and very anti-oppressive practices. Uh, so I do a mix of everything that has to do with therapy from seeing a client, from seeing a, a therapy seeker to help the new clinicians who are coming into the field to, uh, helping also clinicians who are already established, but who want to have, uh, practices that are inclusive and affirming of their clients. That's amazing. 
I feel like you're covering every side of the spectrum. That's so fantastic to hear. That's so exciting. We will continue this Thank conversation you. after recording, yeah. but <laughs> let's get into it. What made you feel like you were a bad therapist? Oh my God. Uh, there are so many things that have made me feel like I'm a bad therapist. Uh, but I think that the main one, uh, and when I say so many things, uh, I would point out at oppressive systems in general. Uh, but I would say that uh, my experience, my particular experience in community mental health is, uh, and in other agencies, is something that made me feel like I was a bad therapist. It's something that made me question myself, uh, made me wonder if I was doing therapy in the right way. Um, I, I believe that even the education I received in grad school, as much as I am thankful for it, uh, I think it's a both and I am very thankful. Uh, but also it was when I was in the field, I realized that it was very limiting, uh, <laughs> that it didn't help me serve all of my clients. So that combination of here I am new out of grad school and here I am also working in community mental health or in other agency settings and, am I really prepared? And what about the things that I am instinctually feeling like I should be doing for my clients? And, and, and it was just a, a horrible mix of doubts and insecurities of, am I doing things right? Am I the only one here in this group practice that, you know, is thinking about these different things, about these different ways of treating clients? Or um, am I complaining unnecessarily? Um, so I would say in general, that's what made me feel like a bad therapist. What were some of the things that you felt like you were thinking about differently or practicing differently? If you could share more of that, that, you know, it sounds like you were kind of thinking in your head, like almost looking at mm -hmm. other therapists, how they were doing things. What was, what were you doing? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I think that one of the main things is that, um, I, I am an immigrant, um, the other language that I speak is Spanish. Uh, so when I um, started uh, working as a therapist, I was living in California. And th there's a huge amount of a Spanish-speaking population. And I was so thankful for that. Like, I thought, yes, I can work with the Spanish-speaking population. Uh, but I was working from these models that are very useful, right? But they have been... Um, developed having in mind a certain particular person mm -hmm. with certain identities, mm -hmm. right? Mostly uh, all, most of the models that we uh, use are either European or Western, mm -hmm. uh, have been developed for white people, cishet individuals, you know, think of all of the identities that are privileged, thin bodies, uh, neuro, um, uh, neurotypical individuals. So, you know, I was operating with these models and I had these skills and I thought that I had all these tools that I could use. Um, but I was not able to use all of those models uh, with the population that I was working with. And then I realized it had nothing to do with that population. It was everyone in general, everyone can have so many different identities that some of the models that I was taught were not enough. Um, and I think that because at the time I didn't have community, I was not able to check in with, let's say, another therapist. Like, hey, are you feeling this and that way? Are you feeling like, I don't know, I... Uh, 
gave just to give an example, I gave my client a, a worksheet on, you know, on, uh, I don't know, um, erroneous thinking, CBT, but it's not working. Do you have the same experience with your own clients? You know, I was lacking that community, so I could not compare notes, if you will. Uh, but also I was using some methodologies that were not the most appropriate for the clients that I was working with, whether that was uh, houseless individuals or individuals who experienced their emotions very intensely or people who just didn't speak the language that those, uh, you know, um, worksheets were in and, and a translation does not do justice to, you know, the, the type of intervention that you want to offer. Um, so because I didn't have community uh, and because of the experience that I had, I felt like I could not serve those clients in the way that I wanted to. Um, I wanted, instinctually, it felt like I could just talk to them, right? Uh, in, in Spanish, we talk about pláticas, heart-to-heart conversations. And I just thought, what if I could just you know, go for a walk with one of these people and just have a conversation, just get to know them more. Um, That's not what I was taught in school, but that seems to be what's working. Uh, And I, at the time, was working for uh, an agency that was very by the book. And uh, I, I was afraid to go to my boss and tell them, you know, is it okay if I do things differently? Uh, so because of not having those connections and not having community, that's another reason why I was feeling like, you know, maybe I am not doing enough. Maybe I am. I, I didn't get the right lesson back in grad school on on how to treat clients with certain identities. Uh, here you are fresh out of grad school and put into a situation where the toolbox, which you earned, is full of Phillips head screwdrivers and you're working with flathead screws and no, and you're by yourself. So you and people are telling you, you this should work. This should work. Why isn't this working? So you, you don't realize that it's the tool and I don't know the screw. I don't know where the analogy is going, but you get what I'm saying. You will ill equipped <laughs> to treat these populations. Is this something how long into working with this population, these clients, did you realize it's not them? It's not you. It's the tool. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, I started working for another place back in California that was more, um, what's the word that we use in, 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 in therapy? Uh, uh, interdisciplinary, right? Mm-hmm. So it was me, there was a psychiatrist, there were other therapists, there was a peer specialist as well. There were recovery specialists. So there were people from all walks of lives, different levels of education, different levels of experiences. Um, so that was one of the things that was very, very useful, right? Uh, knowing that it was not just therapists with our master's degree or our doctorate degrees, that it was other people who were equally valuable, but who had lived experience and who would tell me that's okay. Just go offer that person a cup of coffee and have a conversation with them right? There's nothing wrong with that. Or at some point as well, having people who look like me, because that's something that I didn't have back in grad school. And that's something that I didn't have in my first job as well. Someone who could tell me, well, 
guess what? Within our communities, this is what works, right? Or you were not wrong when you were thinking that if you had just done X, Y, Z with that client, that would have been an amazing intervention. You didn't have to give them a worksheet and homework, you know, and talk about what are the skills that they learn. Uh, and I am not just talking about my community as a Latinx community. I am talking about other communities as well, where, you know, a certain intervention may not work, uh, but it was more about connecting with the person from their lived experience. So the more that I expanded my network, the more that I had community of people who were not just within those um, privileged identities, you know, clinicians who are uh, white, again, cishet or male clinicians uh, or clinicians who come from traditional perspectives, the more that I expanded my network, the more I found that validation of, yes, we can do things differently and that's okay. And your clients will value that more. So when I felt less isolated, I was able to provide better therapy and to trust myself as well, to trust that I was doing something uh, that was actually helping a client, even though that was outside of the model that we had learned in, in grad school. Yeah. And you said that you switched jobs and when it was more of the interdisciplinary team, you felt most, more supported. Did par any part of feeling that like isolation and that rigid model make you want to leave your first job, if you don't mind me asking, and like look into another position? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I think that I think that isolation is, I don't know if it's the worst uh, experience that a clinician could could go through, uh, but certainly it's one yeah. of the worst experiences uh, mm -hmm. that a clinician can go through. Uh, I think we all need community independently of what we do, right? Uh, but when we come to this job, uh, I think that when we uh, graduate, we have so much hope and we have so much energy and we really want to be the agents of change that we, you know, we learn to be in grad school. Um, and we can be faced with a reality that is so oppressive. Um, I'm not speaking in general. I am pretty sure that there are agencies that are amazing, but there are some agencies that aren't. Uh, and there are some uh, spaces of community mental health that are not that amazing, that can be very oppressive. Uh, and it can be so isolating to be in those spaces, to be in the spaces of I have a caseload of 100 or more and I see my clients every other week and I can see them for 40 minutes and I have to see seven people today and eight people tomorrow. Uh, so there's no time for me to rest. There's no time for me to check in with my coworker, you know, next door. Um, there's no time for me to check in with myself and to realize how I'm doing because maybe I am tired. Maybe I have met my quota of vicarious trauma for today. Maybe I need human connection. Maybe I just need to, you know, ground and center myself. But if I don't have time for that, it's so easy to feel isolated and not realize it and then to be so burnt out uh, again, because of how oppressive some uh, workplaces can be, because of this idea of productivity, um, you know, and and uh, 
uh, no-shows, you cannot have a no-show or, or um, working and getting paid based on the amount of clients that you see. So in my experience, those places, looking back, were the ones that made me feel the most isolated because I didn't have time to have community. Let's pause here for a quick ad break. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Are clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Hey, listeners, it's Catherine here, and I'm coming to you today because Allie's not the best at bragging on herself. And I want to remind you all that she has an incredible resource available for free at our website, cccs.care. Allie's Creative Intervention Library is full of easy interventions that even non-art therapist clinicians like me can use with clients of all ages. Every intervention has a list of materials, an entire process video where you watch Allie doing it, and a written description and steps so you can follow along at home. Plus, she even has a list of diagnoses that might find this creative intervention helpful. So if you want to access a totally free library of interventions for when you feel stuck with clients, check out Allie's website, cccs.care, and sign up for free today. And now let's circle back to the show. So time was the biggest barrier to community, right? Yes. And I can't help but think about my own life. And sometimes even when I'm not in an agency taking up all my time, I still put time constraints and feel like I don't have time. And so this is a good reminder for those of us who do make our own schedules that make time for community um, as a way to continue self-care. Completely, completely. And I am so glad that you are highlighting that word because, yes, even in private practice now... Mm I know that I can, the way that I put it is white supremacy one more time creeps back in, you know, with this idea of I have to be good enough. I have to be productive. What did I do today? Right. Um, And even in private practice, that thought Mm -hmm. still creeps back in, in the form of, did I see enough clients? Mm -hmm. Did I write, you know, all the progress notes? Uh, did I make the referrals that, you know, and, and sometimes speaking for myself, I can feel like that was not enough mm-hmm. and, and I need my community and I need the time to pause and reflect and realize that I have done plenty today and that even feeling like I am not doing something means that I am resting and resting should be an essential part of every therapist, if not every person. Uh, because that's how I give my clients a better version of myself by resting, by checking in with myself, by setting boundaries, by being compassionate with myself. How, how am I, you know, 
if, if these are the things that I am teaching to my clients, these are the things that I should be uh, practicing myself as well. Yeah, this is you're speaking exactly recently. I've been trying. I saw a quote and I've been trying to remind myself of it so much. And it's just what you're saying. It was instead of asking myself, was I productive enough to rest? Asking myself, did I rest enough to do my best work that I can? And it's exactly. just I've been trying to keep repeating it to myself because I agree. It feels like it can be driven into us even on a societal level like the systems yes. that we operate in where it's like you're not allowed to rest until you've done all the things and I completely agree with yes. you like those are the times where I'm not often doing my best work I'm not being present with my clients maybe I'm missing something maybe I'm not being intentional but if and if we don't allow ourselves that rest and that shift in mindset you know, it just, it ends up damaging us so much and leading to all the things you're saying, like isolation, you know, the work that we do, it's so important, but it feels like a battle, yes. at least to me. Oh, completely, completely. Um, in my humble opinion, most of us who have been born and raised in either Western or Westernized countries, we have this struggle of feeling like we're not good enough, like we need to be productive. And that is so oppressive, uh, you know, to... Of course, we're always productive because we're always doing something. Here we are recording this amazing conversation. And later, if I rest, that is going to be amazing. Or, you know, if I go play with my child or if I go see my next client, whatever we decide to do, it is going to be amazing and it's going to be its thing in and of its own, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I do believe that, yeah, we have been raised in this very oppressive systems that focus on production, that focus on competition, mm -hmm. uh, in a way that it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. Yes, all the hierarchies in a way that it's really not healthy. Uh, and, and then if we have identities that have not been historically privileged in, in our three cases being, uh, I'm assuming that you identify as, as female. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that extra layer of, oh, but I am not getting paid as much as a cis head man, mm -hmm. uh, or in my case, being a person of color, or if one of you is neurodivergent, right? You know, there are so many things. You could put motherhood on there too. That's another layer. Motherhood. Of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. So there are so many things, right? That we're already doing on so many layers. And on top of that, we're supposed to be productive in a, mm -hmm. in a way that, that doesn't fit our identities sometimes. Um, yeah. And I don't then we bring that to therapy. Realistic. Right? I don't know if it would fit any identity, no. right? It's someone no. else's idea of what they want our identity to be. Exactly. Yes, it is not realistic. Um, yeah, it is simply not realistic, right? That's why uh, in some circles we talk about uh, equity mm -hmm. uh, and we talk about inclusion. And in some circles we even go further and talk about dismantling certain systems or abolishing certain systems. Uh, and maybe that won't happen in our time, but I mean... I am trying to work towards it because I do believe that, you know, we can change certain systems. Uh, and even if I don't see it, I am hoping that I am reaching out to enough people so that they can feel like, yeah, maybe we can change some things or maybe we can question the way in which productivity has been taught to us therapists. Um, 
And that would be amazing if I can question it and if I can learn that as a skill and I can transmit that skill to my clients and to the people around me mm-hmm. in general, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And it sounds like that, I mean, it sounds like from what you're sharing, that does come into your work with clients. As you're saying, how does that come up? Is it through, it sounds like maybe some either self-disclosure, meeting clients where they're at, if you know, looking at culture, looking at different interventions, like how have you then incorporated this? It uh, it sounds like, again, in many ways you have, but specifically with clients, how does that come into play? Yeah, I I, I love that you mentioned that. I I do believe in self-disclosure in a way that doesn't center the clinician. Uh, and again, here I come from a place of empathy, you know, again, as a person of color, as an immigrant, how many times would I have liked for my therapist to tell me just a little bit about themselves mm-hmm. so that I don't feel so, uh, protective of myself, so cautious, you know, can I share some of my story with this person? Do they know enough about me or people who look like me, um, so I do try to disclose without centering myself. Um, I do try to tell my clients uh, as much as I can. You know, if this is a phone call, well, let me tell you, I am a person of color and I focus on working on uh, with uh, people of color. One of the reasons why is because I'm in the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Northwest is is very white. Um, but another thing that I say is that... Um, I am queer and I want that to be an option for whoever is, you know, who, who, any individuals who belong to the LGBTQ community. Uh, and I will also share, for instance, that I am neurodivergent, but I'm still learning how I am neurodivergent. So then that's part of the informed consent for whoever wants to work with me, right? If I am in my learning stage, then maybe you would you will choose not to work with me. You want to work with someone who's more experienced, or maybe you feel like I can relate to you because you're also discovering how you are neurodivergent, right? So I feel that uh, disclosing some of my identities and obviously the ones that I am comfortable with disclosing can help a therapy seeker so, so much, right? Um and again, in a way that is not centering myself, but in a way that I know will help the therapy seeker made an informed decision as to who they are working with. And to me, that 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 shares some of the power back, or at least the power I can give back, my, my ability to share yes. my knowledge and give them all the information I have about myself that's appropriate so they can make the best decision for themselves because I don't know what's best for them, right? Completely. Completely. Like I tell my clients that all the time, I can be the quote unquote expert on the books that I have read in grad school, but I am not the expert in you. You know, even if we share identities, like we know that we're not a monolith, right? No, no culture, no identity, no community is a monolith. So there's no way that I am the expert. So it's what you're saying. It's uh, trying to share that power with the client. There is so much power in us withholding information mm-hmm. as therapists, mm-hmm. as the specialist, right? Uh, and the more information I can share, the, the better. So that, you know, like we were saying, so that the client can make an informed decision, uh, for themselves and so that they feel empowered and so that they feel that there is power with as opposed to power over, right? I completely agree. Um, so yeah, and, and, and together with that, I have tried to um, 
I call it decolonize my paperwork. So I have tried to add as much information as I can so that uh, in my informed consent, potential clients know what to expect with me. Uh, even when I go on vacation, even what are my days off, you know, everything so that they know when I'm available, when I'm not available. Um, I have tried to share as much as I can. I have tried to change the language because language, uh, sometimes we think it's regular language, but it can be so not accessible to someone. Um, I have tried my best to try to explain HIPAA to my clients in a way that it's digestible, that it's understandable. Uh, because again, these clients, they have to fill out that paperwork. They have to go through the intake process in a way that feels to me so imbalanced, right? Here, there is a person who needs therapy and who maybe they just sign all the paperwork because I need to see you right away. Uh, or because you are, I am on 10 wait lists and you are the only one who has a space right now, right? So there are so many reasons why there's so much imbalance already that, again, I try to give that power back to them in any way that I can. I love that. I do something similar where even with my clients, because it can feel so like hierarchical almost, or like they feel that intimidation. Yes. I mm-hmm. see to my clients, I'm like, I am the one maybe, you know, I went to school for this and we're sitting here, but I'm like, but I'm only here because of you. Like when we talk about power, I'm like, you have it. If you weren't here, I wouldn't have a job. Like I wouldn't be getting paid. Like without you, there is no my job and trying to like break that barrier. And like, yeah, we'll talk about things. This is us together though. Cause again, I always say to them, like, I can't do this without you. You're, we're here because yes. of you and like just trying to break down that barrier and not have it be such of that like yeah. imbalance of power, things like that. And I love hearing your intention even behind your paperwork and things like that. It's something I'm always trying to be aware of, like be cognizant of in my own practice. Um, How did you start to navigate that with changing your paperwork? Was that something you dove into on your own? Do you have any resources that you used? I'm curious if you don't mind sharing. Oh, yeah. Um, I did that. (laughs) I did that on my own. Uh, I remember that in the very beginning when I... um, open my private practice. Yes, I tried to have as much community as I could, right? I um, reached out to everyone, every colleague I could. I uh, joined every Facebook group that I could where, you know, people would share resources. Um, And that was useful. But in the end, I think that the best feedback was given by my clients. And maybe it was not explicit feedback, but it was, for better or worse, through trial and error, Mm -hmm. right? what worked and what didn't work back in community mental health? What are the things that I had to explain once, twice, three times? What are the things that my clients, quote unquote, never understood, but actually were like very cryptic in the paperwork, right? Uh, So remembering all of that, I tried to redesign my paperwork in a way that was uh, very accessible to my clients. And I will say that that's still a work in progress. Um, you know, I, I wish that my paperwork was like one or two pages of all the information with very simple language, but I don't know how to do that yet. Uh, Let us know when you do, please. It was Come back mostly- and tell us. <laughs> I, will. I will. You know, interestingly, I've always been taught and I practice that the informed consent and paperwork is a living document. So it's supposed to be updated. So, huh? Yes. 
Yeah. Yes, 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 definitely. So it is a work in progress and it will always be a work in progress. Uh, but again, it's for better or worse through trial and error, right? If, mm-hmm. if a client tomorrow gives me more feedback or they are confused about something, I immediately think of how can I make this more clear so that this doesn't happen again? If I, ma- if I cause some rupture and intentionally same thing, could this, could I, could I have avoided this through my paperwork, through an intervention, through another step in my intake process? So I try to think of all of those things as well. Um, yeah. To make it more accessible to my clients. I love that. Love that intention. Well, Silvana, so we ask all of our guests, you know, if they were, you know, to have a clinician listening, going through something similar, what advice they might give them? We've talked about so much today. So I think, Catherine, if you're okay with this, I'm going to leave it up to Silvana to decide which piece of this you would like to speak to if you were to share some advice to our listeners or all of it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We talked about so many things. Um, I think that for me, the most important, you know, whether it is about you being the only clinician um, with different identities or with marginalized identities in your practice, whether it's because you are a new clinician in an agency with all seasoned clinicians, Mm -hmm. whether it's because you're experiencing burnout, because you're working, um, you know, nine hours a day, seeing 10 clients, To me, the most important thing, what I discovered, (laughs) was to have community. Uh, And by community, I don't mean having like, you know, five friends, you know, uh, a group of coworkers that I go out with on the weekends to have some drinks or, or, I don't know, to eat something. I mean, even one other person that I can talk to, one other person who shares some of my identities, they don't have to share all of the identities, but who shares some of my identities, someone who can tell me, yes, it's hard. Yes, I've been there. Or yes, I'm also afraid of that. Someone who can remind me that I am a therapist, but I'm also human. And I still have emotions and I'm still going to get it wrong sometimes, not on purpose, but you know, that quote unquote failure gives me a lot of information to do things better next time. Right. So just having someone to help me put things into perspective, that has been the most useful in my career. And if that someone shares some of my identities, then even better because I feel like I am less alone. Right. I feel like there are other clinicians out there who are also queer or who are immigrants or who are POCs or neurodivergent. And I am not alone. And this is how we do things based on our identities. And this is how we treat our clients based on our identity. So community, 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 to me, that has been the most important thing in my journey as a therapist and as a person. I could not agree more, Silvana. And I thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with us today. I am really excited to continue learning from you off this podcast because I just want to keep hearing you talk. (laughs) I know. I agree. (laughs) So where can myself and Allie and all of our listeners find you if we want to learn more from you? Oh, for sure. Um, <clears throat> you can go to my website, which is www.7thselfconsulting.com. Um, you can also find me uh, on social media on Instagram. My handle is decolonize your practice. 
Decolonize with a Z. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Decolonize Your Practice. Um, And yeah, uh, that's a program that I have where I teach clinicians to incorporate all these social justice values, decolonized values, liberation-focused values in their practices so that they can really support all of their clients and especially the clients who have marginalized identities. I mean, I'm excited to directly go to your website as soon as we're done recording. I cannot wait to learn more from you. This is amazing. The work you're doing is incredible. And we're so happy. Thank you for sharing all of this with us, with our listeners. It is so important for this to be getting out there. And we're just really, really glad that you could share it with us. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share this with your listeners. Thanks, Alana. And that's it. The OG bad therapists, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song along with many others on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast or wanting to level up the one you already have, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at air effect And don't forget, we're all bad therapists. <laughs>